from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Russia is the only country in the world that still has a nuclear arsenal um, of the kind of capacity to pose an existential threat to us. This is, of course, something that we've been grappling with for decades, and uh, we still have an awful lot to do on the arms control front. That is the unmistakable voice of Fiona Hill, a British-born American foreign affairs specialist. You heard her testify during President Trump's impeachment hearings about Russian activity. And she joins Target USA to tell us Russia is a problem, but we as a nation have to stop helping them be a problem. You know, what we're seeing here is uh, the Russians have become uh, opportunists. Our own uh, dishonest politics have been, you know, picked up and amplified by people from the outside who wishes um, ill, uh, unfortunately. A blunt, enlightening, and sometimes funny interview with Fiona Hill. She recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director of European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. It was November 21st, 2019, when a voice that will echo in the halls of American power for decades issued a stark warning to American legislators and to the millions of people that watched on television. Based on questions and statements I've heard... Some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. The unfortunate truth is that Russia was the foreign power that systematically attacked our democratic institutions in 2016. This is the public conclusion of our intelligence agencies confirmed in bipartisan congressional reports. It is beyond dispute, even if some of the underlying details must remain classified. Dr. Fiona Hill's distinctive voice and profound curated knowledge of Russian intelligence activities and tactics set the record straight during President Donald Trump's impeachment hearing. Part of the warning that Dr. Hill delivered was a reminder that this year, 2020, is another presidential election year. Right now, Russia's security services and their proxies have geared up to repeat their interference in the 2020 election. We are running out of time to stop them. In the course of this investigation, I would ask that you please not promote politically driven falsehoods that so clearly advance Russian interests. As Republicans and Democrats have agreed for decades, Ukraine is a valued partner of the United States, and it plays an important role in our national security. And as I told the committee last month, I refuse to be part of an effort to legitimize an alternate narrative that the Ukrainian government is a U.S. adversary and that Ukraine, not Russia, attacked us in 2016. 
Immediately after the interview, Target USA began pursuing an interview with Dr. Hill, and we're pleased to say it finally happened. Our interview was designed to ascertain three things. One, how significant is the threat from Russia to the U.S.? Number two, how involved is Russia's president in these attacks against the U.S.? And number three, what steps should the U.S. be taking to fix this problem? Dr. Fiona Hill is a senior fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. She recently served as a deputy assistant to the president and senior director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. From 2006 to 2009, she served as a national intelligence officer on Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. She's co-author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. This is how our interview started. Dr. Hill, let me just start off by saying it's a pleasure to talk to you. You had the entire United States and pretty sure a good part of the world riveted with your testimony. Basically, you did something that we very rarely get a chance to see, and that is to show us what's happening on the other side of most of uh, the national security business inside the White House. Your expertise is Russia, among other things. But I'd like to first, if you will, get you to give me your assessment of the threat to the U.S. from Russia. Well, the threat is um, multifold, in fact, uh, JJ. It's uh, the old threat that we have uh, experienced for a very long time, which is that Russia remains the only other country in the world, uh, excluding China at this point, which is um, more of a rising power uh, in the nuclear space. Um, but Russia is the only country in the world that still has uh, a nuclear arsenal um, of the kind of capacity to pose a, an existential threat to us. This is, of course, something that we've been grappling with for decades, and uh, we still have an awful lot to do on the arms control front. Uh, in uh, the second instance, um, Russia has become, uh, over time, more of a non-conventional uh, threat. Uh, Russia also remains a, a major conventional military threat, but you know, over the last several decades, frankly, the geopolitical standoff between Russia and the United States that really marked the uh, Cold War has faded, certainly on the part of the United States. We don't see ourselves in any kind of geopolitical standoff uh, with uh, Russia anymore, uh, certainly not uh, since uh, 1989 and 1991 and the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union. I apologize. I hope you guys can hear me okay. My dog is barking in the background. Yes, so. <laughs> I, I can totally hear your dog. Uh, you, yes, uh, I'm kind of keeping, I'm thinking, you know, kind of, I guess, you know, the dog that doesn't bark, it's been perfectly fine all day. And as soon as we start doing this, <laughs> the dog starts barking. Perhaps it perceives a threat as I'm speaking here in any case. <laughs> do you, uh, do you need to, do you need a moment or? No, I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I mean, I just hope that, um, you know, so the listeners will bear with me. I'm sure everyone's contending with barking dogs at the, at the at, at present. And I don't think it was even the mailman as I look back uh, either. So God knows what that was about. Uh, in any case, um, uh, I was talking about the, uh, you know, the unconventional threat that Russia poses beyond the conventional threat of, uh, you know, the, again, of the largest uh, militaries in the world. 
But, you know, we've seen, um, you know, over time that Russia's threat perceptions of the United States have not shifted as much as you would think that they would uh, since the end of the Cold War. Um, and in fact, uh, Russia continues to see uh, the United States in many senses as its main adversary. This is uh, something that's been featured in many presentations and speeches from Vladimir Putin and many other senior Russian leaders. One of those speeches took place on July 24th, 2016, at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. I will translate just a bit of it for you. Listen to me, we're all adults at this table and experienced professionals at that. But I'm not even going to hope that you're going to relay everything exactly how I said it in your publications. Neither will you attempt to influence your media outlets. I just want to tell you this on a personal level. I must remind you that you already know this, that major global conflicts have been avoided in the past few decades due to the geostrategic balance of power which used to exist. The two supernuclear powers essentially agreed to stop producing both offensive weaponry as well as defensive weaponry. It is simple how it works. Where one side becomes dominant in their military potential, they are more likely to want to be the first to be able to use such power. This is the absolute linchpin to international security. The anti-missile defense system has previously prohibited international law and all of the surrounding agreements that used to exist. It is not in my nature to scold someone, but when the United States unilaterally withdrew from the ABM Treaty in 72, they delivered a colossal blow to the entire system of international security. That again was the translation of Vladimir Putin's remarks from an economic forum in St. Petersburg in 2016, talking about the threat the U.S. posed to Russia. And as Dr. Fiona Hill has said, this threat is something that's constantly on the mind of Vladimir Putin and Russia's leaders. And uh, the forms in uh, which this has manifested itself, uh, the way that Russia has decided to deal with this threat, uh, trying to neutralize uh, the United States uh, from its perception, has been, uh, as I was saying, through unconventional means. In other words, you know, trying uh, uh, warfare by other, other means in, in terms of influence operations, active measures, all kinds of ways uh, in which uh, they're seeking to perhaps manipulate uh, our politics. This is, of course, the themes that I was trying to stress in the uh, testimony. And this is also all tactics. Uh, the Russians and the Soviet Union before them engaged in a great deal of propaganda or in efforts to influence politics in some way in the United States and the West during the Cold War. But they've continued this, and in more recent times have been able to take advantage using new tools of social media uh, to have more effect here. They're, they're really what they do is in exploiting uh, divisions and uh, political rancor, you know, partisan standoffs within our own body politic that they can then uh, amplify uh, polarized debates and to try to um, uh, really contribute to an heightened atmosphere of political chaos that in their hope then neutralizes as a threat, meaning that, they, that the United States is not able to launch any kind of coherent response. And in fact, they hope that this will deter us from um, you know, dealing uh, with Russia in any um, significant fashion.
I mean, I would argue that this is a kind of a total misread on the Russians' part of the nature of a threat that they perceive from the United States. And that although we um, continue to maintain a robust uh, conventional uh, deterrent force and, of course, our uh, nuclear force, um, we've long ago uh, moved away from the idea that we're in some kind of geopolitical struggle with, uh, with Russia. Uh, it's just, you know, unfortunate that we've not been able to persuade the Russians that the world has changed and that they need to move on as well. But that's the problem. Russia's not been able to move on. That was abundantly clear during the run-up to the 2016 election. On January 10th, 2017, Director of National Intelligence Jim Clapper revealed Russia had attacked the U.S. We have high confidence that President Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the U.S. presidential election. President Barack Obama knew something was afoot in September 2016, and he had some words with Vladimir Putin. Cut it out, and there were going to be some serious consequences if he didn't. CIA director at the time, John Brennan, warned his counterpart, Alexander Bortnikov, to stop the meddling. Mr. Bortnikov denied that Russia was doing anything to influence our presidential election. But according to a high-confidence, unanimous assessment from the entire intelligence community, Russia was interfering, and it continued. Moscow's influence campaign blended covert intelligence operations with overt efforts by Russian government agencies, state-funded media, third-party intermediaries, and paid social media users. The list of targets was extensive. People and organizations associated with the 2016 U.S. presidential election, including both major U.S. political parties. Republican Senator Marco Rubio was one of those targeted. In July of 2016, uh, shortly after I announced that I would seek re-election to the United States Senate, former members of my presidential campaign team uh, who had access to the internal information of my presidential campaign were targeted by IP addresses uh, with an unknown location within Russia. And on November 8th, after the election results were in, Vladimir Zirinovsky, a Russian politician, celebrated with champagne. And intelligence sources say other Russian government and intelligence officials in intercepted conversations congratulated each other for achieving something they had tried unsuccessfully to do during the entire Cold War. That was from a part of a 2016 series of reports that we did called Anatomy of a Russian Attack. And it was very clear Russia was using everything at its means to attack the U.S. But a part of what made it work was the fact that we Americans bought it, hook, line, and sinker. In fact, we fed right into it and didn't do ourselves any favors. And Fiona Hill says we're still not. No, we've not. And I mean, what the Russians have done is also amplify plenty of the lies that we've generated in our own system as um, part of our political campaigns. And every uh, you know, side of the equation is guilty in this regard. I mean, we've, um, over time, uh, developed political campaigns uh, that are so rancorous that, you know, I've said in other settings, it's more like uh, some version of mortal combat, almost some kind of cartoonish struggle with uh, an opponent in which uh, the um, other political opponent is vilified to such an extent that people start to forget that they're also Americans. And this is, um, you know, part of what is a, uh, an exercise in selecting a candidate for political office that's either going to move us forward on a regional or national level. And, you know, in, in the hope that you're going to unite the country behind 
um, you know, a, a set of policies. And in fact, our whole political debates have become the exact opposite. They've become uh, so uh, deeply entrenched in uh, opposing uh, rigid divisions, often over the smallest sets of issues, no matter how significant you know they may be, uh, you know, to people. But usually, um, you know, quite often on one or two uh, specific issues, rather than the whole raft of. Of, of issues that we should be debating as a, as a body politic. And also uh, the Russians have taken advantage from the fact that you know, the Supreme Court in, you know, uh, in uh, earlier rulings has allowed large amounts of money uh, to come into uh, the political space in the United States that um, you know, money is seen in many respects as a kind of uh, form of free speech. And you know, we've um, had evidence over periods of time that the Russians have taken advantage from the setting up of uh, political action committees to, in effect, create some of their own through cutouts to, um, you know, give uh, money in clandestine fashion to um, small groups to and individuals. They've created false personas. Um, they've, um, you know, created this uh, army of bots uh, that people are uh, familiar with uh, to, um, you know, send out um, uh, uh, all the messaging, the negative messaging from the uh, political campaigns, you know, they've highlighted uh, the opposition research that one side has done against the other and all of the political dirt that has been dug up on um, opponents, uh, in many cases, just to be said at the beginning, some of it's just outright lies uh, that is um, uh, you know, circulating around. So, you know, what we're seeing here is uh, the Russians have become uh, opportunists um, and, and it's not just them. I mean, we've seen um, uh, more recently that the Chinese are picking up a leaf out of the Russian playbook. I mean, they've been in, involved in much of this themselves. So our own uh, dishonest politics have been you know, picked up and amplified by people from the outside who wishes um, ill, uh, unfortunately. I mean, there's one thing for this to be uh, happening in a domestic environment where at least people are mostly aware that this is part of the domestic political game. Uh, game. It's a much more different and dangerous situation where you have outside forces, be they Russian, Chinese, Iranian, North Korean, you know, you name it, who are trying to make the most of uh, an opportunity there to pit us against each other. You talk about these uh, activities that are coming from Russia and, of course, our own complicit nature, uh, political um, activities that we're engaged in. At what level are the anti-U.S. activities coming from Russia to the U.S. directed by their president, Vladimir Putin? Or is this happening below him or without his knowledge? Well, the details may be without his knowledge in the sense that uh, the Kremlin operates like a, a contracting agency. You know, they put out uh, essentially a request for proposals or a kind of a contracting um, advertisement, essentially, you know, basically um, throwing out to uh, security agencies and sometimes to sort of semi-private contractors, you know, opportunities to, to do something. Um, you know, we've... Uh, had a lot of attention paid to this internet research agency which is run uh, by um, an individual who's indicted um, you know by the FBI after you know many of the inquiries into what the Russians had uh, been doing Mr. Prigozhin who's known as Vladimir Putin's cook uh, because he once had a catering uh, business in fact he probably still has this that um, uh, was doing some uh, catering on a large scale from the Kremlin he proved to be a very effective uh, contractor on that score and he's since branched out into all kinds of things including uh, paramilitary organizations, a rather infamous one known as the Wagner Group uh, that he also owns. 
and um, uh, the Internet Research Agency was one of the entities that uh, Mr. Bogosian has initiated. So it's a, it's a private contractor and the actual details of what they're doing uh, are not necessarily known to the Kremlin. But Mr. Bogosian is very well known uh, to the Kremlin and to many Russian officials. There are lots of pictures of him out in the public domain, you know, sitting uh, with everyone from Putin to other senior leaders. Uh, there's no way that the Russian government doesn't know in general sense what these activities are that are being conducted, but the details um, it's, uh, gives them uh, a, a very large deg uh, or a, a degree of um, uh, plausible deniability, although we might say it's implausible deniability, but um, plausible deniability about the details and the fact that this is being carried out by private entities. But again, people should think about this as contractors and subcontractors. I mean, it, it's the case that the Kremlin can't uh, follow the whole track of this. In some cases, there are um, um, you know, private individuals who are indeed patriots uh, of Russia and you know, set out to become you know, hackers uh, as well. You know, it's a, it's a very large and um, complex uh, situation there. There's one thing though, that I want to say that was we mustn't get too carried away by all of this um, because, um, I mean, again, uh, the scale of this uh, may seem a large, but it's just because of this amplification effect that we have through social media. And we know ourselves about how often things can be retweeted and how often uh, pieces of material from YouTube or whatever else can be uh, disseminated. Uh, and so often a lot of these efforts are rather smaller in scale, but they just have a bigger effect because of uh, the spread. And it's just like in any other uh, situation where people are dealing with information flows it just takes a click for people to read it. But the um, important point to get across to listeners and others is that, you know, we are have, have agency in this too. We don't have to pay attention to that material. Yeah. We can be more discerning in, in what we what we read and what we pick up and, you know, certainly the kind of information that we pay attention to. And um, you know, it's within our own ability to turn the tide on this. Well, that's a very interesting point you make. Um, we have a choice uh, not to engage uh, or whatever we decide to do um, to keep in mind um, where this is coming from. And speaking of which, a researcher I was talking to several years ago when I was working on anatomy of a Russian attack, that researcher told me that Russia, and this is an anecdotal approach, he said, Russia's a nation of chess players. They think several moves ahead. That's, that's what chess players do, if you know anything about it. Um, so my question to you is, do you get the sense or have you gotten the sense that uh, they had been thinking several moves ahead or are thinking several moves ahead of the U.S. Uh, in terms of their activities? And if so, where are they or where, where, where does it stand? Well, in the case of 2016, it certainly seems that uh, that rings true because, you know, we, we know now from all various reports, including a lot of private sector uh, reporting and uh, investigations that are now out in the public domain that there was you know several years of lead time in uh, looking at this and that you know Vladimir Putin and uh, those in the Kremlin you know were highly motivated uh, because they believed that in 2011-2012 when Putin came back into the presidency again after spending a term of four years as prime minister and having handed over the reins to Dmitry Medvedev uh, one of his close associates uh, because he wasn't able to stand for longer than two presidential terms in that time frame. So he needed to kind of take a break and then come back in again. That he felt that the United States had uh, tried to mess with his re-election uh, re as the president. 
And he firmly believed that the U.S. State Department, that was at the period when um, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and the um, U.S. government, the Obama administration, and many other parts of uh, the U.S. Uh, security establishment had launched attacks on him. Um, this was partly because I don't think he could believe himself that there was actually something of a domestic backlash uh, to his return. He, he had been convinced uh, from polling and you know, his own prominent focus groups that there was a great deal of demand for him to return to the presidency, that you know, his popularity was quite high. But in actual fact, you know, a, a lot of people in Moscow and other cities were hoping for some renewal of the system and that they saw Putin's return as something of a retrograde step. So there were protests. And um, I think, you know, Putin felt that he had been challenged, that those protests had been whipped up from uh, the outside. Partly this is because he had grown up in an environment, um, both as a, a youth, a young person, but then as a young professional in the KGB, and then, you know, later in all the rest of uh, his career, in a Cold War environment, in which indeed the United States and the security services were targeting uh, the Soviet Union and uh, Soviet leaders. And uh, for him, there's a kind of, it's a great difficulty to cast off that hangover from the Soviet period and to see that, you know, the world has moved on, that the United States has moved on. He's always convinced that there's some uh, kind of security service uh, propelled attacks against him because that's what he's used to and he doesn't believe that this, is, uh, this has gone away. So in many respects, you know, what we're seeing from the Russian system is still a kind of a muscle memory and going through the motions of the Soviet period, still seeing the United States as the main adversary, seeing the US plot at every turn, uh, disbelieving any evidence to the contrary, and uh, you know, joining dots together to you know, see things often that are not there. And so as a result of what happened in 2000 and 2012, Putin and his system, particularly his services, want to get revenge. And so it seems that in the course of time from 2012, 2013, and onwards, when he gets a grip of the domestic situation at home, he decides to take on the same tactics because many of the things that we're seeing that are targeted against us now have been done at home in Russia. Uh, he decides that he's going to pay it right back again to the US system and launches or at least uh, um, encourages the security services through all of these various contracting and subcontracting to see what they can do to uh, disrupt as much as possible the 2016 presidential election, which was one of the most contentious uh, in the United States in a very long time. And, you know, we're dealing with the consequences of that now. The unfortunate thing in all of this, of course, is that the United States was not doing um, many of the things that the um, Russians were and Putin were accusing the US of doing. And in fact, um, you know, we had in the period under uh, President Obama uh, launched uh, an effort to reset the relationship uh, with Russia to actually put it on a different trajectory. And indeed, President Trump also uh, wanted to uh, engage with Russia and to uh, try to stabilize the relationship and move away from confrontation. So the point of this is for successive U.S. presidents, going back to um, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, George uh, W. Bush, um, as well as you know, obviously Bill Clinton um, in the interim and his uh, efforts to create a different relationship uh, with uh, Boris Yeltsin, we've had successive. Uh, U.S. presidents have all been looking to put the, uh, the relationship with Russia on a different footing, to basically move away from Cold War confrontation. But we've unfortunately been trapped in these old patterns of the idea of security services being okay. uh, pitted against each other. What is Putin up to now? Because, you know, 
he clearly has had designs on staying in power for a very long time, but this cabinet shakeup not long ago where he essentially fired Dmitry Medvedev and uh, named, his, named his tax chief, Mikhail Mashustin, to succeed him. And, and many have told me, and you know, I've done a little bit of research on this, that he seems to be interested or, or angling and staying beyond his, his current term ending. And also there's this question about whether or not he wants to annex an, a neighboring country like Belarus. This may be a part of it. What's your view on all of this? Well, I mean, Putin's been in power so long now that um, although, you know, a lot of people would like a change, they also can't at the same time imagine that change and how it might take place. And if we look back over Russian history, there's histories of coups and assassinations and great uncertainty when you come to, you know, what we'd term a succession crisis. So, you know, Putin came back into the presidencies, like I've just discussed, there was all these protests. Um, Dmitry Medvedev um, moved from being the prime minister to the president and back to being the prime minister again. And in 2024, this was going to be the end of the next two uh, terms of uh, Putin's presidency. While uh, Medvedev was the president, he actually extended those two terms from four to six years. So Putin's got on, you know, essentially another 12 years in the office. And so 2024 was supposed to be the end of um, the Putin's uh, presidential terms. And this started to create a kind of a sense that Putin would soon be a lame duck, an expectation that someone else would succeed him. But, you know, as you're pointing out, um, Medvedev has just been demoted and shifted off to um, a pasture in the National uh, Security Council. It was clear that Medvedev wasn't uh, going to come back as a replacement again. And it was a really heavy lift for the system to find someone else. Putin has taken all the oxygen you know, out of the system. He is the be-all and the end-all. And in some respects, he's become the wild card in the system because he's been there so long that people become quite frightened of him leaving, either by um, natural means or by um, a decision. And you know, who is it out of his uh, inner circle, uh, if it's not Dmitry Medvedev, who could replace him? And then does that, um, as people start to talk about that, uh, raise a risk of if Putin's popularity dips for whatever reason, that somebody might try to usurp it as, as we get closer and closer to 2024? 2024 is also going to be the 100th anniversary of the death of Vladimir Lenin, as the Soviet founder, you know, leader of the Bolshevik Revolution who overthrow uh, the yeah. Zand, uh, regime. And so, you know, people start to wonder there, you know, all the symbolism of these times is Putin going to stay in office forever. And basically the whole system was looking like it was going to be in crisis when we we're getting out to 2024. So Putin has decided to, to break through all of this and get a constitutional amendment to give the system more time. So the idea was to give the system more time to uh, answer these big questions about if not Putin, who and when, and to make sure that nobody thinks he's a lame duck in the interim. Let's talk about Putin's corruption. You've outlined some, some very good tactical moves on his part from a political point of view, but a couple of people that I've spoken to have, have said something to me that I can't verify one way or the other, but they've suggested that Putin needs to stay in office for life in order to collect all of the money that he's amassed since he's been in office, because that money, they say, is in the hands of others. And if he... Uh, leaves office uh, again, you know, like you said, you know, he, he'd lose that power. Um, do you see any of that happening? 
Well, there's not just uh, the question of Putin and you know whatever uh, fortune he might have amassed in power. It's in, it's a huge system of people around him, because in the 20 years that he's uh, been there, either as president or prime minister, he's uh, really appointed an awful uh, lot of people that he's met over the course of his career. You know, stretching back to his days in the KGB and you know back in Leningrad, St. Petersburg, and all the way through now until uh, being the president. He's got family members, extended family members. All of the people he's worked with have got family members and extended family members. And they're also, um, 40% of the Russian workforce now works in the public sector or in the state sector, in the Russian bureaucracy, and they're also vested into this system. So basically, there is uh, millions of people, not just Putin, but all of those who are around him, one way or another, dependent on him staying where he is. And so, you know, there's an awful lot of questions that if he goes... Is there then a kind of uh, a mass expulsion of all the people who've worked with him? So an awful lot of other people also want him to stay in place or at least have a guarantee of how he is going to move into a different position uh, so that they'll know that their own assets and interests are protected, including their careers and their uh, promises of advancement. And so what Putin was trying to do with this announcement in January of constitutional changes and all of uh, the F steps that were taken with the constitutional court making a ruling and the Russian parliament voting on this, and then it was supposed to be put to national referendum, which has had to be cancelled because of the um, coronavirus. The whole idea uh, was to um, give the system a bit more predictability and to uh, reassure everyone that the system was stable and that they would also have their place in it while they kind of work out how to hand it off to the next generation. Okay. Fiona, we're running very short on time here, but I've got a couple of other questions that I need to get to before we go. Um, could you give us your assessment of how this administration, the Trump administration, has handled the Russia problem? Well, the intention of uh, the administration was to uh, try to engage in um, a negotiation and uh, discussions with Russia uh, to uh, eventually end up with an arms control deal. Um, you know, we still had a lot of work left over uh, from uh, previous decades and many of the treaties that were uh, concluded, like the INF Treaty at the height of arms control back in the 1980s, uh, were becoming um, obsolete or in the case of INF, uh, the Russians were violating them and had done for such a long time to the extent that you know we really needed to address this situation. We've also got New START uh, that was signed in uh, 2010 and is going to expire uh, next year in uh, 2021. So there was an awful lot of issues like this on the agenda. And as I'd mentioned before, you know previous governments were trying to change the trajectory of the relationship. But given what happened in 2016, Russia has become part of really a toxic political churn um, in US domestic politics. I mean, Russia made itself that by the choice of intervening and trying to interfere in the election, trying to influence public opinion and all the things that we know that the, that the Russians did. So um, Russia has become almost too hot to handle. And, you know, I, I really... Um, but, you know, if we're really honest in our assessment here, it was a very tall order to be able to manage uh, this relationship in this time frame, given the fact that Russia has become so much part of our domestic politics and the fact that it's also become part of our own domestic uh, political infighting. So, you know, whatever, you know, coherent plan or, you know, strategic planning and thinking that we had about Russia, you know, back in 2017, it's just been uh, extraordinarily difficult to put anything into action. What does the U.S. most need to be concerned? Needs what does the U.S. need to be most concerned about moving forward as a, when it comes to Russia? 
Well, first of all, we've got to get Russia out of our domestic politics and stop, uh, you know, treating it as just some kind of object to be bandied backwards and forwards and, you know, kind of all of these fights over uh, the Mueller report. Um, you know, I mean, really, this is exacerbating the problem. Uh, Russia interfered in our elections in 2016. You know, they tried to, to do um, operations against our electrical systems. We kept them out. You know, we've addressed all of this, but they're still trying to, you know, just in, uh, putting it in, uh, you know, kind of um, popular terms. They're trying to hack our minds still. They're still trying to kind of mess about and manipulate public opinion and, you know, kind of become a factor in uh, the dialogues. We have to stop them from doing that. So again, we have to just accept what they did in 2016. And then we have to try to find a way of having a rational discussion about Russia. We are not in a geopolitical standoff with Russia. We still do have the problem of our nuclear arsenals and our large conventional military forces and the posture that has uh, been retained since the Cold War period that we need to address. There is no good reason for us being in a fight with the Russians and we have to figure out how to manage that. So at some point, uh, when we've got some space in our body politic, we need to have a sensible uh, discussion about where we want that relationship to go. It cannot be the be all and the end all. And we can't be heading on this ruinous, uh, from even from the perspective of our own domestic politics, this ruinous confrontation with Russia, which is frankly just pointless at this stage. What haven't I asked you about that you think is important? Well, again, I think it's very important for anybody listening to this to realize that we have agency in all of this. You can't just um, address everything at the top and that we have to have a sensible conversation uh, about Russia. We have to you know, um, also be able to make a distinction between you know, the habits and uh, you know, the paranoia of the uh, Russian uh, political leadership having come out of their security services and just the kind of a mindset that they're still fighting the Cold War and then the Russian people and uh, Russian business that is not all corrupt, not all run by oligarchs, and that you know there are still ways in which we can find some kind of stable uh, relationship uh, with the Russians. We ought to try to find ways of professionalizing that relationship. There are good diplomats in uh, Russia, just as there are excellent diplomats here in uh, the United States. And we ought to be able to you know, get back to the period that we had you know, some time ago now, uh, more than probably a decade uh, ago, where we were able to have sensible conversations uh, with Russia. We have to stop uh, seeing them as a perpetual menace, uh, and they have to stop seeing us as a, um, as a threat. And we can only do that really by engaging with them and finding ways of changing the calculus and the incentives. They have to uh, themselves see that there's more to get out of engagement than there is uh, out of confrontation. That's a high bar. It's going to be a hard slog. It's not going to be easy. But um, you know, for our own sakes and the sake of our own domestic uh, political health, we have to try to do that. Very final thing. After your testimony on Capitol Hill, you've got, you've got some very interesting responses from Americans and other people, uh, including, I've heard, uh, death threats. Is that accurate? I did. Look, I mean, an awful lot of people, um, you know, have uh, their own views on this. Um, I was uh, honest in giving an assessment. Uh, again, I think this typifies the partisan rancor and the deep polarization that we have here. And again, this kind of view that uh, domestic politics is uh, a mortal combat and you know, a battle in which all opponents have to be defeated. Uh, people have lost sight of the fact that we're all Americans and this is you know, a United States in which we're all in this together. 
But at the same time, I have to say, JJ, that I got an enormous number of letters, hundreds and hundreds of letters uh, from all the way around America, and only one of which was somewhat negative. And again, I think it was actually justified when I took a careful read of uh, you know, what the person had written. Most of the really hateful comments uh, were online or mm -hmm. anonymous phone calls. Mm -hmm. But the people who took the time to write really expressed similar worries about the state of our domestic um, politics. Mm -hmm. They worried about the deep polarization, the partisan divides, and they wanted to see something better. And a lot of the letters that people wrote were extremely thoughtful and just uh, show that there are some real genuine patriotic Americans out there who want to make a difference themselves. And we're all sort of thinking themselves about how they could uh, do something to change the situation. Well, that's very good that you got some positive. Dr. Fiona Hill is a senior fellow in the center of the United States and Europe in the foreign policy program at Brookings. And she was uh, a senior director of European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. And Dr. Hill, we thank you for your time here today. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's really been great to talk to you today. Thanks a lot. Dr. Fiona Hill. That's it for this episode. Coming up in our next episode, and then there's China. The, the Department of Commerce and the Department of State has said in 2019 and 2018 alone, China only intellectual property theft within the U.S. cost well over $600 billion to the U.S. Mike Jenke former SEAL Team 6 member turned ultra-successful CEO and entrepreneur talks to Target USA about a radical new company that's picking out exactly how Chinese intelligence and military manages to steal so much intellectual property from the U.S. There's hacking involved. Special Chinese intelligence and military programs for Chinese citizens only and then there's coercion. There are multiple cases of, you know, younger Chinese Americans who were born in California. And the Chinese recruiter says, look, you're working at Facebook. Um, do this for Mother China, or it would be a shame if your grandmother didn't receive medical care. A special look at how CEOs and cabinet secretaries alike in the U.S. are having the veil lifted for them to see exactly how Chinese agents are stealing so much intellectual property from the U.S. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at wtop.com. Also, Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. You can sign up for Inside the Skiff at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. 
You know what? I'm not a high school girl, so shut up. Run for the hills. Who says going out and partying in a club you can't find love? It's the Spidey Podcast with Spencer and Heidi Pratt. Hello. I'm not dead. If you want your husband going out every night, good for freaking you. Hey, that was a joke if you're an idiot. Spencer, you spoiled brat. Your life is amazing. Get new episodes every Monday on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Don't worry, Mom. I got you. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.